Welcome to the Doctoral Mentoring Masterclass for faculty sponsored by Walden University's Office of Research and Doctoral Services. I'm Lee Stallander, the Associate Director of Faculty Research Training at Walden. I hope you enjoy the Masterclass. Hi everyone, this is Lita Downs from the Office of Teaching and Learning Excellence, and it is my pleasure to welcome you all to Walden University's third doctoral mentoring masterclass for faculty who mentor professional doctoral projects. The masterclasses are designed to allow faculty who have been identified as exceptional mentors to share their experiences and insights with the mentoring community. Today's session will be Mentoring the Capstone Project. The purpose of this class is to have professional doctoral mentors better understand how to mentor their students through the Capstone Project. The goal for the session today is to provide a list of usable strategies for mentors to get to know their students and to understand the basics of mentoring. On the line today, we have Dr. Lee Statlander, who will be moderating. We also have our panelists, Dr. Mark Gordon, Dr. Gwen Dooley, and Dr. Miriam Ross. At this point, I'm going to turn things over to Dr. Lee Statlander. Welcome. Thank you, Lita. Um, as Lita mentioned, I'm the coordinator of faculty research training in ORDS, and I will be moderating today. So let's introduce our panel members of Exceptional Mentors. Mark, you wanna introduce yourself? Sure, um, I primarily work with uh, PhD and DPA students in public policy. Um, been with Walden for about 21, uh, 21 years. And I have over 45 um, records in ProQuest. And uh, part of my duties is to um, work with students that have had a difficult time in capstone. And uh, yeah. Okay, thank you. Miriam? Hi, um, I have worked in the DHA program, Doctor of Healthcare Administration program, um, for several years and enjoy working with um, my students and mentoring. And I also teach in the uh, MHA program in healthcare. So I'm looking forward to this um, presentation. Awesome. And Gwen? I am Gwen Dooley. I work with the College of Management and Human Potential in the <laughs> department or the school or the program of Doctorate of Business Administration. I've been with Walden for nearly 10 years, if not more. And I work with doctoral students who are completing capstone projects. So let's start with how you each view the capstone project. Um, for some of us, I know we only do PhD dissertations, so it would be really helpful to understand a little bit more about what the capstone is and what you're expecting from it. Now let whoever wants to start. Uh, I'll go ahead and just start. Um... I, again, our doctor of public administration program is not that old in um, context with Walden. So it's primarily a um, action research where we want students to go in and identify and help an organization solve an organizational problem. And the organization would be a public sector organization, be it a department of ABC or a nonprofit organization or something like that. 
So uh, that's, we really want students to focus in on an organizational problem. And in helping the organization, it will cause positive social change, hopefully. I work with um, business administration students and it's the same as Mark. We focus on a business related problem, trying to help an organization solve that problem through research. And so our applied research um, capstone project is more about strategies as well as understanding what successful strategies work so that others may benefit from those findings. And in my program, <clears throat> DHA focuses and their students use secondary data. And the focus again is systems oriented. <clears throat> and so when students come in, that may be something they have to get used to because it's not one small problem. Uh, it's helping them look at their organization or an organization in full and see what problem that they can identify that would help them improve systems within that organization. So that's um, how I view it. Thank you. Miriam, so students use secondary data in your program, right? So we actually, in our program, want them to uh, gather primary data. So that's a significant difference. Right. So how do you help the student decide on a project that an organization actually needs as opposed to what they might be interested in? Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, I'll go ahead and go first again, since I'm on uh, square number one here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, students come to me with um, a draft in the draft perspective <clears throat> may or may not have any basis in reality. Oftentimes, or at least half of the time, it is what a student thinks they ought to do for an organization. And they haven't had that really uh, important, necessary conversation with an organizational leader to actually help them um, come up with a really good, important, researchable problem that the organization really needs. So when I meet my student for the first time, we have that conversation right up front. In addition to how we're going to work well together, it's the, tell me about um, how you've conceptualized your prospectus. Is this real? Have you talked with someone? And if not, I have a conversation about um, sort of healthy thinking and helping that organization um, think about how both they and the student can meet in the middle and come up with a really good um, real research project, meaningful. Yeah, I would agree. When my students first come with that prospectus that they've worked on, it may or may not be viable because they have not looked at systems yet. And that is a mindset that is difficult for some students. So our first conversations are, how can we take what you've identified, which is a very narrow focus and something you think is a problem and take them to where they put on their administrative hat and say, 
how can I change this into a systems problem? And that's that takes a few sessions. So for the first few weeks, we getting to know each other. And I try to ask them, where do you work? What do you do? Um, how can you pull what you do into the entire organization? How can you look at that? And that really starts to open their eyes. Whereas before they saw it as something separate from themselves, they're able to take it and integrate it into, oh, this is not just about one little idea. This is about an entire organization and how I contribute to it, how I fit into it. And and that kind of helps them I, solidify a problem. I want to interrupt and just really support something you said in having the conversation. What do they want as a as a professional out of the project as well? How will this benefit them and their career? And that's a that's a good place to uh, something to consider. <laughs> well, go ahead. Along the lines of both <clears throat> colleagues here, we we I usually have a telephone call with them, and then I usually meet via Zoom so that we can get an understanding of the concept, the research concept, or their topic. We try to make sure that it aligns with their specialization, so that they will actually be contributing to their area of study. And so we will have that kind of conversation to form the research concept. And then I use um, the discussion board for them to present their topic, their problem statement, purpose statement, and research questions so that their team members or their peers could also add to the conversation so that it is a well-rounded and constructed uh, research concept. So you have uh, students in that talk with each other in your um, course shell, your capstone shell. Oh I, yes. Okay, I I can't get my students to actually speak together in in a timely manner. So so I think that's great that you can do that. <laughs> well, no, I, I agree. <laughs> part of that is we I, I have formed this culture. We we're a team doing. And so when they first come into our, our culture in our classroom, we introduce them as team members. And right. so because they feel part of the collective, they will tend to discuss more in the, the classroom. And plus we have weekly meetings where they are getting to know each other and they're forming a relationship where they will communicate with each other. And that kinds of kind of put me out of the bubble but yet in the bubble so that I could provide guidance. You know, one thing I want to add to, because I'm inspired by what you guys were saying. Um, when I uh, speak with students, sometimes they'll, they'll go back to the organization and they'll come back with some ideas. And when they can actually name it, that's when I feel like we're getting there. Is it a program outcome assessment? Is it a, is it a, an audit of board member skills is it you know if we can get to there then we're we're ready to align the project so yeah. and that doesn't happen necessarily on the one conversation so it does take follow up yeah yeah that's a very good point because students it, it is something that evolves 
Mm-hmm. Whereas first, as both of you have said, it's almost like foreign to them. They may have taken a course about it. It's still foreign to them. So it takes a few weeks to get that mindset <clears throat> where they're able to verbalize, as you mentioned, yeah. what the problem is in, in a systems way. They work through um, a series of seminars to get And again, if they haven't met with an organization while in these seminar classes or at residency, it's kind of theoretical. So Mm -hmm. it's it's useful, but now we need it to be useful and real. (laughs) Yes. This is kind of getting at some of the stuff you said, but if you have a student that comes to you with a really obviously biased topic in some way, how do you help them? to rethink that, to get it into a more non-biased topic? That is a great point. And I would say that all my students start with a bias because they have chosen the problem because they think they know the solution. And it's starting them off saying, you know, I'll say right up front, if you think you know the answer, then you do not have a study, period. So you have to change your mindset. And a good example that I always share with them is that I had a student um, that I picked up in the midst of his, um, I I got him from other uh, committee members, and he had already developed a proposal that was completely biased about telemedicine because he was convinced that younger people would be more interested in using telemedicine than older people because they were uh, better tuned to uh, those types of things. And it took an incredible, he practically had to redo the whole thing because he had so much bias in it. And you know what? It turned out exactly the opposite. So as we went through the whole thing, and I share this with students, it was older people willing to use telemedicine, not younger people. So as he finished and went through it, people at all involved in medicine is hard. Yeah, they want to connect with the physician, and the older people didn't care. They just wanted to stay home and do a telemedicine. So. You know, I share this with them because it's very easy to understand. And then I go over and over with them. You do not know the answer. I keep having to reiterate that. And with sharing examples, I think they finally understand. And then, but it has to be part of their mindset. It can't can't be separate. It, It has to be so ingrained in them that as they write, they're writing it correctly. And, and that takes time. It does take time. And what I usually do is try to place them in the role of the people they're going to ask. Can I conduct my study at your organization? And for example, I have a student right now that wants to talk about unethical hiring practices. Well, what? how can we turn this around for Uh, an understanding of what are the successful hiring practices so that other people can learn from the successful ideas or solutions versus saying to the individual that you have unethical hiring practices. And then I try to give them real world business um, um, ideas 
in the fact that what organization is, or leader is going to let you come in and say, I hire people unethically. So I try to let them see it from the leader's perspective and then try to work around their concept on how to look at this issue in a positive manner that will help all to embrace um, whatever practices that they are um, focusing on. I love that idea of going in and telling people that they are doing something wrong just from the start. Not very endearing, is it? <laughs> so obviously there are some problems there, uh, but are there other problems that you see with your students? Um, how about like interactions with companies or something? Any issues that? I have a really, I have an example that's similar that yeah. sort of in this vein. I had a student who is in the Oakland, San Francisco Bay Area, and um, was very interested in the homeless problem there. And um, she thought, I, I could just sort of tell that she thought she had an answer for to solve the problem. And so we had to back, back her off of that. I mean, if you had the answer, because, you know, we've been trying to solve that problem for decades and it seems to be getting worse um but it was an entree into a good conversation to uh, to bring her passion and her interest and help an organization so at this point she was a a nurse actually um and went and just cold called uh the program director for a, a new um, pilot project and and this is the getting real so her bias uh, of thinking that she had an answer um, turns out pilot program had no measures of success written down anywhere and so her job was to to help them figure out what are some good measures of success is a multiple stakeholder theory it was great but it came we worked with the bias <laughs> and got her to a healthy place. And it was a really beautiful study. <laughs> Other problems that I will notice in students is a laziness of, of paying attention to de details mm -hmm. in their writing. And I find that they want to use me as a crutch as editor. And so having them to go and find the answer and to share it rather than me giving them that information voluntarily has been um, one of the challenges of my, my team. And so I will, they put their work on the discussion board and I will go in and I say, what's wrong with this reference? And then share the correct way or how I see anthropomorphism where did you see anthropomorphism at? And, and I go through those series of learning experiences so that they will then begin to start building a checklist so that they will start editing their work more right. intentionally so that they will be able to produce quality sections. Um, and they don't like for me to edit on the discussion board 
But that is another way of helping them to really hone in on their writing. So and I find that to be very when good. You, you intuit, because you've worked with so many students, when you no longer are helping them form ideas in, um, in evaluating quality standards and you're, you've become the editor, <laughs> you know, it's like, wait a minute, what just happened here? <laughs> Yeah, but I find that when you demonstrate it and, mm. and use red intentionally so that they they then make sure the next time that they don't get all of that. So you don't do the whole thing. That's you just right. Here, I've given you the example. You need to go and correct throughout. <laughs> yeah. exactly. mm-hmm. So I create learning experiences so that they then begin to present better writing. Um, and you could see the growth. Because as I do it, then their peers are doing it. And then that means I got to level up and I must do it myself. And so it is a hard road to climb or mountain to climb, but they work hard so that they can be that expert for the next person, the new member on the team. That is wonderful. I mean, what a great way to build confidence and expertise. Um, I may be in touch with you about how you've gotten that going, because I just think uh, peers teaching peers as well as you teaching peers is a wonderful growth aspect of how they're growing as scholars and teachers and future instructors. So and sometimes I'm sorry, a I've lot got more a bad critical. cat here. So excuse <laughs> sometimes all students my are quite quite critical of each other. <laughs> <laughs> right. But but that is is a wonderful thing. So thank you for sharing that. That's really a great example. Thank you. Anything else anyone wants to bring up is I don't know if this is a question, but I did want to make sure we talked about the resources at some point. Talk about what? resources and using the tools that we created. Sure, let's go there. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, again, early at that, that introductory call, I actually have a little list of things that I, I, I write down because I think I'll remember and I won't. So I, I have a little list on my phone um, to talk with students. And one of them is be sure you use um, the resources specific to our program. Um, right. So you're that make sure you're reading the guidebook for, in my case, the um, DPA program, um, because they're different. Right. <laughs> and sometimes I will walk them on the phone through the links to make sure that they're getting to the right places. Um, so one is to make sure they're using the and reading and actually reading and understanding and um, have a conversation about that in the templates, the writing templates, some of the basic stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I, it always surprises me when people don't use a template. It's like, why would you not? You know, it's just... exactly. What I do, um, usually I meet with my students on Thursdays. And so if a question comes up about process and procedures, I will go to the, to the resource Um, the writing center page, the research center page, and demonstrate exactly where to find that. Um, As well as I I, I get 
how long does it take for committee members to review the document? So that information is in the process um, checklist. And so they must go there and find that answer. I find that long as I'm giving them the answers, they won't go look. But if they have to go look and then tell me what that response is, I find that they don't ask the questions over and over and over again. Well, um, again, it goes back to the it's getting real. Um, they may have read the guidebook or they may have read these materials a while ago. And at that time, it was sort of like, well, that, you know, when I get there, I'll whatever. And so having them read it again, even though you think you know it, it's not that difficult. It's not that long, but it's super important. <laughs> yeah. It right. Is. So from my perspective, I've always done PhD dissertations. Do you think that mentoring projects is different than doing it with a dissertation? I do not. I, I don't either because the biggest difference I see is that it is systems. So, but it's still divided into sections. It's still research. They still have to have that mindset. But I suppose the biggest difference is, from my perspective in healthcare, it's more of a systems approach rather than one uh, more focused research topic. Um, but that's the only difference I see because otherwise students don't see it as a project per se, they still see it as research, but just a different focus of research and more from a in my program, a healthcare administrator focus. Their focus has to be healthcare administration, not just an isolated problem. And in the beginning, when I talked about that, that's the, that's the thing they need to adjust to. They need to put on their administrator hat, even if they're not an administrator yet, and see it from a systems viewpoint and how everything is interconnected how what they're doing is connected to all aspects of healthcare. There's domains set up and they have to see their focus linking to all the domains. And that is probably different from a regular, although I don't know, I don't teach in that, a regular PhD program where they can have a more isolated topic of research. Uh, for us, it's more of a systems topic, but still one particular focus in that system. I think for me, the, they, I agree, they're very similar. I feel like students sort of get it, like what am I going to provide for this organization? It's very practical as well. There's a, a deliverable and we want students to provide an executive summary, provide um, whatever that deliverable was to the organization. And, and in some ways, I feel like it's a little more concrete and, and specific for the organization rather than a PhD, which can apply beyond the organization. Mm -hmm. Gwen, any other insights? No, I, I agree with my colleagues. They're, they're similar, even though um, a PhD is more about identifying a problem, maybe to solve it. We're looking at strategies in the DBA program and how we can share that information, the results 
with other people who may be similar to the organization that we were involved with. So, but mentoring is the same. You still have to coach them through understanding the foundations of research, how to link that with the radical um, frameworks, and also how to write in a way that is professional where other people may understand what they are delivering through their research. And I think it's really important that um, students really care that they're giving back to the organization. You know, mm -hmm. it's exhausting and I'm done and whatever. I, it's really important that they deliver that report or whatever it was they agreed on. So, yeah. yeah. And, and I do think that's um, perhaps a little bit of a difference, perhaps not, that because they are focused on the organization, many of their administrators and folks supporting them do want the results to see how it can benefit the organization. So that's an important aspect of it. So it sounds like you are collecting a lot of information along the way. How do you organize your work with the students? I mean, you must have information on their organizations as well as what they're doing. So how do you do that? Well, I would say they have to do it. Um, we're helping them arrive at what they're going to study, but they have to become much more knowledgeable about the total organization and how the parts fit together. And I do think that they end up being a more valuable um, employee once the whole project is done because they've, they value the systems and how the different sections of the organization work together more effectively. So I do think that that makes a difference. Yeah, a lot of my students are not employees of the organization where they work. In fact, mm -hmm. the vast majority are not, which I guess helps with objectivity. <laughs> um, but I have a, a folder for each of my students. So every piece of communication gets, it's, I, I drag it right into their folder. Um, and then when I get that final, they're from the CAO's office, then I retire their folder into my archive <laughs> just to, because otherwise it's pretty, it can get pretty cluttered, but yeah, I keep, and frankly, it's for me too. I work with so many students. I have to go back and look at my last correspondence. A lot of the time I'm like, okay, you know, students think that they're the only person we work with. And so it's it can be overwhelming. So like, what did I ask them to do? Like, what did I, what was the last email we sent or whatever it was? So are you putting, uh, I do it for me as well. <laughs> sorry. Are you putting emails in the folder or do you have that separate? Uh, no, everything goes in it. The emails yeah, I have in. a folder on my laptop that everything goes in by date and by course. And then I have a folder in my email for each student so that I can easily look up, okay, what was my last email to them? Because you're right, we're sending so many emails. So I know exactly what I last sent to them to be able to refresh myself. And I know by date what their last submission to me was. That's right. And, and if you're course, over 50, it's like, wait, we talked last week. I don't remember that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. No, I have to have that as well. I have to have it very, very organized. 
Well, I have to level up. I do not save the emails. Oh, wow. Okay. I save the emails on the Outlook. And so all I have to do is search for that. So I, I might need to level up and start saving emails. But I do the same thing. Each student has a file. Any document that I receive or share with them is in their file. I have a good memory, so I remember conversations. But if I have to go back and pull something, if it's in an email or on, on a phone text, I will be able to do that because I don't delete anything. So, but maybe I need to level up and start no, saving. You know what? I think, I think the important part is to have a system, right? Yeah. Whatever, whatever that system that works well for you, right? Right. <laughs> Yeah, but that's the one thing I, I I don't do. Now, I do know that some people use an Excel sheet or a, a tracking sheet where yeah. they note all that the, the correspondence in the, in the records for each student and they put that in the folder. I've been thinking about doing that, but I just think, you know, I have barriers that I build up for extra work. But <laughs> no, I, I have a few colleagues that use Excel that way. And yeah. um, I... Yeah, that doesn't work for me, but it works great for them. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. Well, we have about maybe 10 minutes left. Do we have any questions from our audience members? And you are welcome to be unmuted by Lita if you wish. Oh, got something. Uh, Morris. Says, you mentioned action research in that connection. What research designs do the panelists advise their students to employ? And what are the selection criteria? I, I actually meant to say applied research, not wow. action research. So that was my bad. Thank you. <laughs> um, I, I, I tend to work with students that are doing qualitative um, they, I need them to do look at archival records of the organization, so trend reports, annual reports, anything that's related to their what they're um, investigating, and they typically are interviewing. Semi, just almost all of them end up doing a semi-structured interview of multiple groups, whether they be administrator groups. If it's a nonprofit, the volunteer groups or the program directors that work with volunteers. Um, sometimes it's actually clients of an organization. Um, so that tends to be the primary data for my students. So is it case studies? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But it'd be interesting, Miriam, you work with secondary data, right? So. <laughs> uh, yes, which is always quantitative. Um, which makes it easier, although many students as they're starting off think that they can do um, primary research. And so it's teaching them that they have to find the secondary data. Now the DHA program is going to an integrative review analysis, which will be much better for students. It's, it's very hard sometimes to find good secondary data. So um, that, can, that can make a difference, but that, that's how we approach it right now, but we'll be changing in the future. But integrative review, that's of literature, correct? Correct. Right. When? And we won't be using task stream. It's it's a totally new model, totally different. 
I'm sorry, you said Gwen and I was busy answering Jim. Oh, we were just talking about what type of methods your students use and particular like case studies or whatever. Well, we use um, the pragmatic, qualitative pragmatic design, mostly case studies. I have not seen phenomenological lately. I will have one or two students to do a quantitative correlational research um, design. So it, it just varies on exactly what they're doing and how they're going to approach people or whether or not they're going to actually be in an organization. They have to actually conduct research in an organization to do a case study. But if they're going to talk to several individuals, usually that's going to be a qualitative pragmatic design, which is really a general descriptive study. In a public, uh, in DPA, the Doctor of Public Administration, I actually thought we would have more students that would have access to public data, big, big um, records. And it turns out I've not worked with any student that's done secondary data, and I would love to. <laughs> um, well, we that's why a, we're changing. Our <laughs> well, our design is not really, uh, the guidebook doesn't guide students to do that. But if a student came to me with a really great data set, I'd be like, I'd mm -hmm. be happy. That'd be great. Okay, we have a question from Dr. Keshkin, and I'm not even going to try your last name. How do you get them to ensure that they're not just providing their opinions as their perspectives and ensure that they are leveraging qualitative and quantitative standards to their research approach? and referencing citations according to APA standards. We'll stop there. <laughs> There's more questions. <laughs> the short well, answer. we've discussed bias. That to me goes back to bias. Mm -hmm. And to me that starts at the prospectus level when we're first meeting with them during the first months that they're starting to formulate how they the direction of their study so that kind of bias and inserting their own opinion it does go throughout the proposal it's not as much in the final study but it does go throughout the proposal but if they have a good understanding at the prospectus stage then usually that diminishes the problem if i can add usually when you're reading the proposal you can see the individual in the writing. And so if I have a question about something, I will say, show me this, where you got it from. I need to see the article, send me the article. I usually validate when I begin to see more of them and their bias in their writing or their perspective in their writing, because I want to validate that an author really said that or whether or not they're making that up. So I will spot check and ask them to send me the article, show me this information highlighted in the article so that I can validate and confirm. Um, uh, regarding chat GPT, mm -hmm. I have advised my students not to use it because you want to have that work coming from you versus an AI. Now, do they use it to make their writing um, more professional or sound differently? Yes, but they have to really share that with me and, and let me see what they put in. But I've asked them 
let's do the traditional type of research and let's not bring in the AI at this time until we understand how it's impacting um, what they're presenting because I, I just don't, don't feel comfortable right now, but that's me. You know, I'm wondering if AI, uh, if you can sort of see AI bringing them, bringing the reader a bit off topic, at least for a case study, it seems to be very specific to the case. So I'm just curious about, I, I haven't encountered that yet, I'm, but that'd be something maybe we'll see. Yeah, I've encountered it in a master's level program, but not the doctoral students I'm working with. But as Gwen uh, mentioned earlier, when I see opinion coming through, I put a red need citation. So everywhere I see opinion need citation, and then they adapt their information if they don't have a citation that backs it up. I, and during the oral, again, I'm a checklister guy. So I have a little standardized checklist in my proposal orals, spend a few minutes giving advice to the student about checking bias, about um, tips for how to interview. One of the things I tell them is uh, I want to hear the voice. If you're doing an interview, I want, I want to see paraphrases. I want to see I want to see the voice of the people that you've interviewed. In other words, don't make up your data because I will be looking. <laughs> and uh, if I don't see that, I will ask for the raw data. And uh, and not in a punitive way, just in I want to make sure that your uh, participants actually said this. <laughs> yeah. We do have a question from Ronald. Um, Lita, can we un unmute him? Yes, he's unmuted. So Ron, I'll just on the lower left-hand side, if you click the mic button, we'll be able to chime in. Well, if you'd like to send us your question, I'm happy to try chase down our panelists and see if they can answer it for you. And we are just about out of time anyway. I wanna thank our panelists. You guys, as always, were amazing. I learn so much every time everybody starts talking. It's like, oh, I want to do that now. You know, <laughs> that's great ideas. So thank you. One thing I, I sort of, as we're wrapping up, um, if you um, feel like I'm not sure what to do or what, how do we handle it in our program, definitely pick up the phone or shoot an email because I work with colleagues that are just so collegial and really want to help. I mean, never feel like you're out there alone or you're not sure where things are because somebody will, will be there to help you. So. Absolutely. Yeah. We have so many resources for you. And between well, us sometimes all- Sometimes it's almost too much. It's like how yeah. to get to the right resource. That might be a good question. <laughs> Absolutely. We're trying to fix that. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you, everybody. Thank you, Lita, for all of your work. Appreciate you. You're very welcome. Thank you all. And keep an eye out for the next masterclass series. And I know we will be sending the recording and we will be distributing that or posting that shortly. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. This podcast was sponsored by Walden University's Office of Research and Doctoral Services. Our music was by Excel Music Publishing licensed under Creative Commons.